Volume One, Chapter Two of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume One, Chapter Two. I lived far from the busy haunts of men, and the rumor of wars or political changes came worn to a mere sound to our mountain abodes. England had been the scene of momentous struggles during my early boyhood. In the year 2073, the last of its kings, the ancient friend of my father, had abdicated in compliance with the gentle force of the remonstrances of his subjects, and a republic was instituted. Large estates were secured to the dethroned monarch and his family, and he received the title of Earl of Windsor, and Windsor Castle, an ancient royalty, with its wide domains, were a part of his allotted wealth. He died soon after, leaving two children, a son and a daughter. The ex-queen, a princess of the House of Austria, had long impelled her husband to withstand the necessity of the times. She was haughty and fearless. She cherished a love of power, and a bitter contempt for him who had despoiled himself of a kingdom. For her children's sake alone she consented to remain, shorn of regality, a member of the English Republic. When she became a widow, she turned all her thoughts to the educating of her son Adrian, second Earl of Windsor, so as to accomplish her ambitious ends, and with his mother's milk he imbibed, and was intended to grow up in the steady purpose of reacquiring his lost crown. Adrian was now fifteen years of age. He was addicted to study, and imbued beyond his years with learning and talent. Report said that he had already begun to thwart his mother's views, and to entertain Republican principles. However this might be, the haughty countess entrusted none with the secrets of her family tuition. Adrian was bred up in solitude, and kept apart from the natural companions of his age and rank. Some unknown circumstance now induced his mother to send him from under her immediate tutelage, and we heard that he was about to visit Cumberland. A thousand tales were rife, explanatory of the Countess of Windsor's conduct, none true, probably, but each day it became more certain that we should have the noble scion of the late regal house of England among us. There was a large estate with a mansion attached to it, belonging to this family, at Allswater. A large park was one of its appendages, laid out with great taste, and plentifully stocked with game. I had often made depredations on these preserves, and the neglected state of the property facilitated my incursions. When it was decided that the young Earl of Windsor should visit Cumberland, workmen arrived to put the house and grounds in order for his reception. The apartments were restored to their pristine splendor, and the park, all disrepairs restored, was guarded with unusual care. I was beyond measure disturbed by this intelligence. It roused all my dormant recollections, my suspended sentiments of injury, and gave rise to the new one of revenge. I could no longer attend to my occupations. All my plans and devices were forgotten. I seemed about to begin life anew, and that under no good auspices. The tug-of-war, I thought, was now to begin. He would come triumphantly to the district to which my parent had fled broken-hearted. He would find the ill-fated offspring, bequeathed with such vain confidence to his royal father, miserable paupers. That he should know of our existence, and treat us, near at hand, with the same contumely which his father had practiced in distance and absence, appeared to me the certain consequence of all that had gone before. Thus, then, I should meet this titled stripling, the son of my father's friend. He would be hedged in by servants. Nobles and the sons of nobles were his companions. All England rang with his name, and his coming, like a thunderstorm, was heard from far. 
while I, unlettered and unfashioned, should, if I came in contact with him, in the judgment of his courtly followers, bear evidence in my very person to the propriety of that ingratitude which had made me the degraded being I appeared. With my mind fully occupied by these ideas, I might be said as if fascinated to haunt the destined abode of the young earl. I watched the progress of the improvements, and stood by the unlading wagons, as various articles of luxury brought from London were taken forth and conveyed into the mansion. It was part of the ex-queen's plan to surround her son with princely magnificence. I beheld rich carpets and silken hangings, ornaments of gold, richly embossed metals, emblazoned furniture, and all the appendages of high rank arranged, so that nothing but what was regal in splendor should reach the eye of one of royal descent. I looked on these, I turned my gaze to my own mean dress. Whence sprung this difference? Whence but from ingratitude, from falsehood, from a dereliction on the part of the prince's father, of all noble sympathy and generous feeling? Doubtless he also, whose blood received a mingling tide from his proud mother, he, the acknowledged focus of the kingdom's wealth and nobility, had been taught to repeat my father's name with disdain, and to scoff at my just claims to protection. I strove to think that all this grandeur was but more glaring infamy, and that, by planting his gold-inwoven flag beside my tarnished and tattered banner, he proclaimed not his superiority, but his debasement. Yet I envied him. His stud of beautiful horses, his arms of costly workmanship, the praise that attended him, the adoration, ready servitor, high place and high esteem, I considered them as forcibly wrenched from me, and envied them all with novel and tormenting bitterness. To crown my vexation of spirit, Perdita, the visionary Perdita, seemed to awake to real life with transport when she told me that the Earl of Windsor was about to arrive. "'And this pleases you?' I observed moodily. "'Indeed it does, Lionel,' she replied. "'I quite long to see him. He is the descendant of our kings, the first noble of the land. Everyone admires and loves him, and they say that his rank is his least merit. He is generous, brave, and affable. "'You have learnt a pretty lesson, Perdita,' said I, "'and repeat it so literally, that you forget the while the proofs we have of the Earl's virtues. His generosity to us is manifest in our plenty, his bravery in the protection he affords us, his affability in the notice he takes of us. His rank his least merit, do you say? Why, all his virtues are derived from his station only, because he is rich, he is called generous.' because he is powerful, brave, because he is well served, he is affable. Let them call him so. Let all England believe him to be thus. We know him. He is our enemy, our penurious, dastardly, arrogant enemy. If he were gifted with one particle of the virtues you call his, he would do justly by us, if it were only to shew that if he must strike it should not be a fallen foe. His father injured my father. His father, unassailable on his throne, dare despise him who only stooped beneath himself, when he deigned to associate with the royal ingrate. We, descendants from the one and the other, must be enemies also. He shall find that I can feel my injuries, and he shall learn to dread my revenge. A few days after he arrived. Every inhabitant of the most miserable cottage went to swell the stream of population that poured forth to meet him. Even Perdita, in spite of my late Philippic, crept near the highway, to behold this idol of all hearts. I, driven half mad, as I met party after party of the country people in their holiday best descending the hills, escaped to their cloud-veiled summits, and looking on the sterile rocks about me, exclaimed, They do not cry, long live the earl! Nor, 
when night came, accompanied by drizzling rain and cold, would I return home, for I knew that each cottage rang with the praises of Adrian. As I felt my limbs grow numb and chill, my pain served as food for my insane aversion. Nay, I almost triumphed in it, since it seemed to afford me reason and excuse for my hatred of my unheeding adversary. All was attributed to him, for I confounded so entirely the idea of father and son that I forgot that the latter might be wholly unconscious of his parents' neglect of us. And as I struck my aching head with my hand, I cried, He shall hear of this. I will be revenged. I will not suffer like a spaniel. He shall know, beggar and friendless as I am, that I will not tamely submit to injury. Each day, each hour added to these exaggerated wrongs. His praises were so much adder's stings infixed in my vulnerable breast. If I saw him at a distance, riding a beautiful horse, my blood boiled with rage. The air seemed poisoned by his presence, and my very native English was changed to a vile jargon, since every phrase I heard was coupled with his name and honor. I panted to relieve this painful heart-burning by some misdeed that should rouse him to a sense of my antipathy. It was the height of his offending that he should occasion in me such intolerable sensations, and not deign himself to afford any demonstration that he was aware that I even lived to feel them. It soon became known that Adrian took great delight in his park and preserves. He never sported, but spent hours in watching the tribes of lovely and almost tame animals with which it was stocked, and ordered that greater care should be taken of them than ever. Here was an opening for my plans of offence, and I made use of it with all the brute impetuosity I derived from my active mode of life. I proposed the enterprise of poaching on his domain to my few remaining comrades, who were the most determined and lawless of the crew but they all shrunk from the peril, so I was left to achieve my revenge myself. At first my exploits were unperceived. I increased in daring. Footsteps on the dewy grass, torn boughs, and marks of slaughter at length betrayed me to the gamekeepers. They kept better watch. I was taken and sent to prison. I entered its gloomy walls in a fit of triumphant ecstasy. He feels me now, I cried, and shall again and again. I passed but one day in confinement. In the evening I was liberated, as I was told, by the order of the Earl himself. This news precipitated me from my self-raised pinnacle of honour. He despises me, I thought, but he shall learn that I despise him, and hold in equal contempt his punishments and his clemency. On the second night after my release I was again taken by the gamekeepers, again imprisoned, and again released, and again, such was my pertinacity, did the fourth night find me in the forbidden park. The gamekeepers were more enraged than their lord by my obstinacy. They had received orders that if I were taken again I should be brought to the earl, and his lenity made them expect a conclusion which they considered ill-befitting my crime. One of them, who had been from the first the leader among those who had seized me, resolved to satisfy his own resentment before he made me over to the higher powers. The late setting of the moon and the extreme caution I was obliged to use in this my third expedition consumed so much time that something like a qualm of fear came over me when I perceived dark night yield to twilight. I crept along by the fern on my hands and knees, seeking the shadowy coverts of the underwood, while the birds awoke with unwelcome song above, and the fresh morning wind, playing among the boughs, made me suspect a footfall at each turn. My heart beat quick as I approached the palings. My hand was on one of them, a leap would take me to the other side, when two keepers sprang from an ambush upon me. One knocked me down, and proceeded to inflict a severe horse-whipping. I started up. A knife was in my grasp. I made a plunge at his raised right arm, and inflicted a deep, wide wound in his hand. 
the rage and yells of the wounded man, the howling execrations of his comrade, which I answered with equal bitterness and fury, echoed through the dell. Morning broke more and more, ill-accordant in its celestial beauty with our brute and noisy contest. I and my enemy were still struggling, when the wounded man exclaimed, "'The Earl!' I sprang out of the Herculean hold of the keeper, panting from my exertions. I cast furious glances on my persecutors, and placing myself with my back to a tree, resolved to defend myself to the last. My garments were torn, and they, as well as my hands, were stained with the blood of the man I had wounded. One hand grasped the dead birds, my hard-earned prey, the other held the knife. My hair was matted, my face besmeared with the same guilty signs that bore witness against me on the dripping instrument I clenched. My whole appearance was haggard and squalid. Tall and muscular as I was in form, I must have looked like what indeed I was, the merest ruffian that ever trod the earth. The name of the Earl startled me, and caused all the indignant blood that warmed my heart to rush into my cheeks. I had never seen him before. I figured to myself a haughty, assuming youth, who would take me to task, if he deigned to speak to me, with all the arrogance of superiority. My reply was ready, a reproach I deemed calculated to sting his very heart. He came up the while, and his appearance blew aside, with gentle western breath, my cloudy wrath. A tall, slim, fair boy, with a physiognomy expressive of the excess of sensibility and refinement, stood before me. The morning sunbeams tinged with gold his silken hair, and spread light and glory over his beaming countenance. "'How is this?' he cried. The men eagerly began their defense. He put them aside, saying, "'Two of you at once, on a mere lad? For shame!' He came up to me. "'Verney,' he cried. "'Lionel Verney!' Do we meet thus for the first time? We were born to be friends to each other, and though ill-fortune has divided us, will you not acknowledge the hereditary bond of friendship, which I trust will hereafter unite us? As he spoke, his earnest eyes, fixed on me, seemed to read my very soul. My heart, my savage, revengeful heart, felt the influence of sweet benignity sink upon it, while his thrilling voice, like sweetest melody, awoke a mute echo within me, stirring to its depths the life-blood in my frame. I desired to reply, to acknowledge his goodness, accept his proffered friendship, but words, fitting words, were not afforded to the rough mountaineer. I would have held up my hand, but its guilty stain restrained me. Adrian took pity on my faltering mien. "'Come with me,' he said. "'I have much to say to you. Come home with me. You know who I am?' "'Yes,' I exclaimed. "'I do believe that I now know you, that you will pardon my mistakes, my crime.' Adrian smiled gently and after giving his orders to the gamekeepers, he came up to me, putting his arm in mine, and we walked together to the mansion. It was not his rank, after all that I have said, surely it will not be suspected that it was Adrian's rank, that from the first subdued my heart of hearts, and laid my entire spirit prostrate before him. Nor it was I alone who felt thus intimately his perfections. His sensibility and courtesy fascinated everyone. His vivacity, intelligence, and active spirit of benevolence completed the conquest. Even at this early age, he was deep-read and imbued with the spirit of high philosophy. This spirit gave a tone of irresistible persuasion to his intercourse with others, so that he seemed like an inspired musician who struck with unerring skill the lyre of mind and produced thence divine harmony. In person he hardly appeared of this world. His slight frame was over-informed by the soul that dwelt within it. He was all mind, man but a rush against his breast, and it would have conquered his strength. But the might of his smile would have tamed a hungry lion, 
or caused a legion of armed men to lay their weapons at his feet. I spent the day with him. At first he did not recur to the past, or indeed to any personal occurrences. He wished, probably, to inspire me with confidence, and give me time to gather together my scattered thoughts. He talked of general subjects, and gave me ideas I had never before conceived. We sat in his library, and he spoke of the old Greek sages, and of the power which they had acquired over the minds of men, through the force of love and wisdom only. The room was decorated with the busts of many of them, and he described their characters to me. As he spoke, I felt subject to him, and all my boasted pride and strength were subdued by the honeyed accents of this blue-eyed boy. The trim and pale domain of civilization, which I had before regarded from my wild jungle as inaccessible, had its wicket opened by him. I stepped within, and felt, as I entered, that I trod my native soil. As evening came on, he reverted to the past. I have a tale to relate, he said, and much explanation to give concerning the past. Perhaps you can assist me to curtail it. Do you remember your father? I had never the happiness of seeing him, but his name is one of my earliest recollections. He stands written in my mind's tablets as the type of all that was gallant, amiable, and fascinating in man. His wit was not more conspicuous than the overflowing goodness of his heart, which he poured in such full measure on his friends as to leave, alas, small remnant for himself. Encouraged by this encomium, I proceeded, in answer to his inquiries, to relate what I remembered of my parent, and he gave an account of those circumstances which had brought about a neglect of my father's testamentary letter. When, in after times, Adrian's father, then King of England, felt his situation become more perilous, his line of conduct more embarrassed, again and again he wished for his early friend, who might stand a mound against the impetuous anger of his queen, a mediator between him and the Parliament. From the time that he quitted London, on the fatal night of his defeat at the gaming-table, the king had received no tidings concerning him, and when, after the lapse of years, he exerted himself to discover him, every trace was lost. With fonder regret than ever, he clung to his memory, and gave it in charge to his son, if ever he should meet this valued friend, in his name to bestow every succor, to assure him that, to the last, his attachment survived separation and silence. A short time before Adrian's visit to Cumberland, the heir of the nobleman to whom my father had confided his last appeal to his royal master, put this letter, its seal unbroken, into the young earl's hands. It had been found cast aside with a mass of papers of old date, and accident alone brought it to light. Adrian read it with deep interest, and found there that living spirit of genius and wit he had so often heard commemorated. He discovered the name of the spot whither my father had retreated, and where he died. He learnt the existence of his orphan children, and during the short interval between his arrival at Oldswater and our meeting in the park, he had been occupied in making inquiries concerning us, and arranging a variety of plans for our benefit, preliminary to his introducing himself to our notice. The mode in which he spoke of my father was gratifying to my vanity. The veil which he delicately cast over his benevolence, in alleging a duteous fulfillment of the king's latest will, was soothing to my pride. Other feelings, less ambiguous, were called into play by his conciliating manner and the generous warmth of his expressions, respect rarely before experienced, admiration and love. He touched my rocky heart with his magic power, and the stream of affection gushed forth, imperishable and pure. In the evening we parted. He pressed my hand. 
We shall meet again. Come to me tomorrow. I clasped that kind hand. I tried to answer. A fervent, God bless you, was all my ignorance could frame of speech. And I darted away, oppressed by my new emotions. I could not rest. I sought the hills. A west wind swept them, and the stars glittered above. I ran on, careless of outward objects, but trying to master the struggling spirit within me by means of bodily fatigue. This, I thought, is power, not to be strong of limb, hard of heart, ferocious and daring, but kind, compassionate, and soft. Stopping short, I clasped my hands, and with the fervor of a new proselyte, cried, Doubt me not, Adrian, I also will become wise and good, and then, quite overcome, I wept aloud. As this gust of passion passed from me, I felt more composed. I lay on the ground, and giving the reins to my thoughts, repassed in my mind my former life, and began, fold by fold, to unwind the many errors of my heart, and to discover how brutish, savage, and worthless I had hitherto been. I could not, however, at that time feel remorse, for methought I was born anew, my soul threw off the burden of past sin, to commence a new career in innocence and love. Nothing harsh or rough remained to jar with the soft feelings which the transactions of the day had inspired. I was as a child lisping its devotions after its mother, and my plastic soul was remolded by a master hand, which I neither desired nor was able to resist. This was the first commencement of my friendship with Adrian, and I must commemorate this day as the most fortunate of my life. I now began to be human. I was admitted within that sacred boundary which divides the intellectual and moral nature of man from that which characterizes animals. My best feelings were called into play to give fitting responses to the generosity, wisdom, and amenity of my new friend. He, with a noble goodness all his own, took infinite delight in bestowing to prodigality the treasures of his mind and fortune on the long-neglected son of his father's friend, the offspring of that gifted being whose excellencies and talents he had heard commemorated from infancy. After his abdication, the late king had retreated from the sphere of politics, yet his domestic circle afforded him small content. The ex-queen had none of the virtues of domestic life, and those of courage and daring which she possessed were rendered null by the secession of her husband. She despised him, and did not care to conceal her sentiments. The king had, in compliance with her exactions, cast off his old friends, but he had acquired no new ones under her guidance. In this dearth of sympathy he had recourse to his almost infant son, and the early development of talent and sensibility rendered Adrian no unfitting depository of his father's confidence. He was never weary of listening to the latter's often repeated accounts of old times, in which my father had played a distinguished part. His keen remarks were repeated to the boy, and remembered by him. His wit, his fascinations, his very faults were hallowed by the regret of affection. His loss was sincerely deplored. Even the queen's dislike of the favorite was ineffectual to deprive him of his son's admiration. It was bitter, sarcastic, contemptuous, but as she bestowed her heavy censure alike on his virtues as his errors, on his devoted friendship and his ill-bestowed loves, on his disinterestedness and his prodigality, on his prepossessing grace of manner, and the facility with which he yielded to temptation, her double shot proved too heavy, and fell short of the mark. Nor did her angry dislike prevent Adrian from imaging my father, as he had said, the type of all that was gallant, amiable, and fascinating in man. It was not strange, therefore, that when he heard of the existence of the offspring of this celebrated person, 
he should have formed the plan of bestowing on them all the advantages his rank made him rich to afford. When he found me a vagabond shepherd of the hills, a poacher, an unlettered savage, still his kindness did not fail. In addition to the opinion he entertained that his father was to a degree culpable of neglect towards us, and that he was bound to every possible reparation, he was pleased to say that under all my ruggedness there glimmered forth an elevation of spirit which could be distinguished from mere animal courage, and that I inherited a similarity of countenance to my father, which gave proof that all his virtues and talents had not died with him. Whatever those might be which descended to me, my noble young friend resolved should not be lost for want of culture. Acting upon this plan in our subsequent intercourse, he led me to wish to participate in that cultivation which graced his own intellect. My active mind, when once it seized upon this new idea, fastened on it with extreme avidity. At first it was the great object of my ambition to rival the merits of my father, and render myself worthy of the friendship of Adrian. But curiosity soon awoke, and an earnest love of knowledge, which caused me to pass days and nights in reading and study. I was already well acquainted with what I may term the panorama of nature, the change of seasons, and the various appearances of heaven and earth. But I was at once startled and enchanted by my sudden extension of vision, when the curtain, which had been drawn before the intellectual world, was withdrawn, and I saw the universe, not only as it presented itself to my outward senses, but as it had appeared to the wisest among men. Poetry and its creations, philosophy and its researches and classifications, alike awoke the sleeping ideas in my mind, and gave me new ones. I felt as the sailor, who from the topmast first discovered the shore of America, and like him I hastened to tell my companions of my discoveries in unknown regions. But I was unable to excite in any breast the same craving appetite for knowledge that existed in mine. Even Perdita was unable to understand me. I had lived in what is generally called the world of reality, and it was awakening to a new country to find that there was a deeper meaning in all I saw, besides that which my eyes conveyed to me. The visionary Perdita beheld in all this only a new gloss upon an old reading, and her own was sufficiently inexhaustible to content her. She listened to me as she had done to the narration of my adventures, and sometimes took an interest in this species of information, but she did not, as I did, look on it as an integral part of her being, which having obtained I could no more put off than the universal sense of touch. We both agreed in loving Adrian, although she, not having yet escaped from childhood, could not appreciate as I did the extent of his merits, or feel the same sympathy in his pursuits and opinions. I was forever with him. There was a sensibility and sweetness in his disposition that gave a tender and unearthly tone to our converse. Then he was as gay as a lark, caroling from its sky-tower, soaring in thought as an eagle, innocent as the mild-eyed dove. He could dispel the seriousness of Perdita, and take the sting from the torturing activity of my nature. I looked back to my restless desires and painful struggles with my fellow-beings as to a troubled dream, and felt myself as much changed as if I had transmigrated into another form, whose fresh sensorium and mechanism of nerves had altered the reflection of the apparent universe in the mirror of the mind. But it was not so. I was the same in strength, in earnest craving for sympathy, in my yearning for active exertion. My manly virtues did not desert me, for the witch Urania spared the locks of Samson, while he reposed at her feet, but all was softened and humanized. Nor did Adrian instruct me only in the cold truths of history and philosophy. 
at the same time that he taught me by their means to subdue my own reckless and uncultured spirit, he opened to my view the living page of his own heart, and gave me to feel and understand its wondrous character. The ex-Queen of England had, even during infancy, endeavoured to implant daring and ambitious designs in the mind of her son. She saw that he was endowed with genius and surpassing talent. These she cultivated for the sake of afterwards using them for the furtherance of her own views. She encouraged his craving for knowledge and his impetuous courage. She even tolerated his tameless love of freedom, under the hope that this would, as is too often the case, lead to a passion for command. She endeavoured to bring him up in a sense of resentment towards, and a desire to revenge himself upon, those who had been instrumental in bringing about his father's abdication. In this she did not succeed. The accounts furnished him, however distorted, of a great and wise nation asserting its right to govern itself, excited his admiration. In early days he became a Republican from principle. Still his mother did not despair. To the love of rule and haughty pride of birth she added determined ambition, patience, and self-control. She devoted herself to the study of her son's disposition. By the application of praise, censure, and exhortation, she tried to seek and strike the fitting chords, and though the melody that followed her touch seemed discord to her, she built her hopes on his talents, and felt sure that she would at last win him. The kind of banishment he now experienced arose from other causes. The ex-queen had also a daughter, now twelve years of age, his fairy sister, Adrian was wont to call her, a lovely animated little thing, all sensibility and truth. With these, her children, the noble widow constantly resided at Windsor, and admitted no visitors except her own partisans, travellers from her native Germany, and a few of the foreign ministers. Among these, and highly distinguished by her, was Prince Zaimi, ambassador to England from the free states of Greece, and his daughter, the young Princess Evadne, passed much of her time at Windsor Castle. In company with this sprightly and clever Greek girl, the Countess would relax from her usual state. Her views with regard to her own children placed all her words and actions relative to them under restraint. But Evadne was a plaything she could in no way fear, nor were her talents and vivacity slight alleviations to the monotony of the Countess's life. Evadne was eighteen years of age. Although they spent much time together at Windsor, the extreme youth of Adrian prevented any suspicion as to the nature of their intercourse. But he was ardent and tender of heart beyond the common nature of man, and had already learnt to love, while the beauteous Greek smiled benignantly on the boy. It was strange to me, who, though older than Adrian, had never loved, to witness the whole-heart sacrifice of my friend. There was neither jealousy, inquietude, or mistrust in his sentiment. It was devotion and faith. His life was swallowed up in the existence of his beloved, and his heart beat only in unison with the pulsations that vivified hers. This was the secret law of his life. He loved and was beloved. The universe was to him a dwelling to inhabit with his chosen one, and not either a scheme of society or an enchainment of events that can impart to him either happiness or misery. What, though life and the system of social intercourse were a wilderness, a tiger-haunted jungle, through the mist of its errors, in the depths of its savage recesses, there was a disentangled and flowery pathway, through which they might journey in safety and delight. Their track would be like the passage of the Red Sea, which they might traverse with unwet feet, though a wall of destruction were impending on either side. Alas, why must I record the hapless delusion of this matchless specimen of humanity? 
What is there in our nature that is forever urging us on towards pain and misery? We are not formed for enjoyment, and however we may be attuned to the reception of pleasurable emotion, disappointment is the never-failing pilot of our life's bark, and ruthlessly carries us on to the shoals. Who was better framed than this highly gifted youth to love and be beloved, and to reap unalienable joy from an unblamed passion? If his heart had slept but a few years longer, he might have been saved, but it awoke in its infancy, it had power, but no knowledge, and it was ruined, even as a too early blowing bud is nipped by the killing frost. I did not accuse Evadne of hypocrisy or a wish to deceive her lover, but the first letter that I saw of hers convinced me that she did not love him. It was written with elegance, and, foreigner as she was, with great command of language. The handwriting itself was exquisitely beautiful. There was something in her very paper in its folds, which even I, who did not love, was withal unskilled in such matters, could discern as being tasteful. There was much kindness, gratitude, and sweetness in her expression, but no love. Evadne was two years older than Adrian, and who, at eighteen, ever loved one so much their junior. I compared her placid epistles with the burning ones of Adrian. His soul seemed to distill itself into the words he wrote, and they breathed on the paper, bearing with them a portion of the life of love, which was his life. The very writing used to exhaust him, and he would weep over them, merely from the excess of emotion they awakened in his heart. Adrian's soul was painted in his countenance, and concealment or deceit were at the antipodes to the dreadless frankness of his nature. Evadne made it her earnest request that the tale of their loves should not be revealed to his mother, and after for a while contesting the point, he yielded to her. A vain concession. His demeanor quickly betrayed his secret to the quick eyes of the ex-queen. With the same wary prudence that characterized her whole conduct, she concealed her discovery, but hastened to remove her son from the sphere of the attractive Greek. He was sent to Cumberland, but the plan of correspondence between the lovers, arranged by Evadne, was effectually hidden from her. Thus the absence of Adrian, concerted for the purpose of separating, united them in firmer bonds than ever. To me he discoursed ceaselessly of his beloved Ionian. Her country, its ancient annals, its late memorable struggles, were all made to partake in her glory and excellence. He submitted to be away from her, because she commanded this submission, but for her influence he would have declared his attachment before England, and resisted with unshaken constancy his mother's opposition. Evadne's feminine prudence perceived how useless any assertion of his resolves would be, till added years gave weight to his power. Perhaps there was besides a lurking dislike to bind herself in the face of the world to one whom she did not love, not love, at least, with that passionate enthusiasm which her heart told her she might one day feel towards another. He obeyed her injunctions, and passed a year in exile in Cumberland. End of Volume 1, Chapter 2